This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and here I am with my definitely Kubernetes-enabled co-host, Jon. Okay, how do you see me being modular? I mean, this does not disconnect. I mean, if I die, nothing else brings up in my stead. I mean, I don't see it. I don't see it. You're, You're containerized. You're contained within your fleshy... Oh, I thought it was COVID reference. <laughs> <laughs> You're contained within your fleshy form. There you go. In the best of oh. times. I mean, it doesn't always work that way, to be honest. But uh, yeah, we'll be talking a little bit about Kubernetes. And actually, I haven't set up the links beforehand, so I'm doing that right now while I'm not talking about anything specific. But um, the reason we talk about this is I found an article, and that happens more often, but this article actually says stuff that I've been saying too. It's uh, from Ably, who does a push-pull kind of uh, message bus kind of thing. It's a SaaS service. It doesn't really matter here. The thing is that this is kind of a poster child for having a Kubernetes container-backed infrastructure. And uh, earlier, a couple of weeks ago, they published a, a blog say, telling the world, nope, we're not doing any Kubernetes because for us, it doesn't make sense. Uh, it works just as well without. It's uh, less of a heartache, less of a headache, and so on, and so on. And for me, it's kind of good to hear this stuff because like everything, even Kubernetes doesn't escape the hype cycle. It's hype. Everybody needs to go to containers. Everybody needs to go to Docker. It's the way of the future. Don't stay behind. And sure, it makes sense in certain things, but it also sometimes doesn't. And this was one one of the few articles, one of the few newsworthy things I found where it actually gives a little bit of a contrasting, comparing view of, okay, what if you don't? Yeah. And of course, the internet being the internet went and <laughs> denial of service, the <laughs> Avely website, because the internet's populated by trolls and bad people. Um, uh, it's, I mean, I get it. It makes perfect sense that not every single use case, um, you know, needs to be a Kubernetes use case. But why do we have to set fire to people that decide that maybe they don't need something? Oh dear. Anyway, it's, it is just, um, like the articles that talk about this are kind of stoking the fires for propaganda purposes, in my opinion, because yes, their website went down. Yes, the internet denial of service them. Well done. Congratulations. Um, the reality is that, you know, their underlying platform was in no way, shape or form affected. Uh, their customers and users were in no way, shape, or form affected, apart from the fact they couldn't get to the website. But the the actual Ably service was not impacted at all. And it's... I don't really know what the articles that are crowing about this are, are sort of... Are, are trying to say, like great yes the internet is able to denial of service someone congratulations but i don't really get the the furor um that sort of circles around it beyond that um, 
Actually, I'm not entirely sure it was a, a true DDoS attack. It could also just be that the article was so inflammatory or perceived as inflammatory by certain people that they all tried to read the article at the same time to educate themselves. I mean, that, I mean, that, that, is, uh, that, that is by its very definition DDoS. It just happens not to be um, driven by um, bots. It's driven yeah. by you know, traffic and that sort of thing. But yeah, the worst thing was that they kind of blamed uh, Ably. They said, okay, you're not using containers. See, your website is down. That's how bad you are. Well, as you say, their blog website has nothing to do with the product they're actually selling. Yep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think this, is this to me at least, reinforces that, yes, the internet is full of trolls. Congratulations. Uh, but also... Yeah, well, there's an element of truth there too, um, but but also, like the the approach that um, Ably take for their application infrastructure and the methods that they use that mean they don't really need um, Kubernetes. Like, that's are absolutely valid. I do not, in any way, shape, or think, form, think that Kubernetes is absolutely essential just because everyone else is doing it. Take a, an impartial look at how your application platform infrastructure, call it whatever you like, is built and understand, like, I would always try and look for what's the simplest, most performant, most efficient way to deliver this rather than the, what's the most complicated, most buzzwordy, um, <laughs> You know, most top of the moment method of implementing something like no one ever. When he talks about it, must be perfect. Come on. <laughs> now I'm going to correct myself a little bit though, because they are using containers. They're basically, they're not yeah. using the orchestration layer, but they're still containerizing everything. And I can't help but think back to our previous news episodes a couple of weeks ago, where we had Facebook uh, patching a lot of stuff and having to maintain all that stuff. I mean, if Ably or if company X, this is not specifically about this company anymore, it's just uh, the concepts behind it. If a company is using Docker containers, they will need some kind of orchestration layer, even if it's just some kind of, hopefully CHD kind of stuff that replaces a container when it's required, doesn't upgrade, things like that. Which basically is what Kubernetes in essence was meant to do. It does a lot more there these days. It's, it, call it bloat or functionality, whatever you want. If it's useful for you, it's functionality. If it's not useful for you, I guess it's bloat. But still, the Kubernetes environment is there as a de facto standard being used by a lot of people, being developed by a lot of people, should be stable, blah, blah, blah. And here, a company using Docker containers has written something far more simple than Kubernetes, I would assume, far more maintainable, yeah. but maintained by themselves. So with the, the Facebook story in, 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 my, in the back of my head, are they setting themselves up for failure in the long run, or is this still a valid approach? I th from, I don't have any internal knowledge at all, but from reading the article, it seems like they are targeting very, very simple kind of auto-scaling um, and a they seem to have a, a handful of um, things like resource management and traffic ingress. Yeah, uh, and away they, from the company they itself, they're using, Yeah, but they, they're using the 
cloud providers technologies for a bunch of those things. So actually the the shim layer that they've built themselves for their automation, as I understand it, is actually relatively thin and yeah. relatively lightweight compared to anything else. Mm -hmm. So you could argue uh, is Kubernetes too much for mm -hmm. a lot of use cases? And I think the the answer here is yes. It's at least it they perceive it as to be too overcomplicated for them for what they need right now. Ah, now, does that mean the that there might not be some feature or functionality in the future? Well, I'm not really convinced that this is a problem because mm -hmm. they're already doing something in the, uh, they're already using containers. Their environment is already um, built in a way, as I understand it, just again from reading their blogs, that they could move it to Kubernetes if they wanted to. They would just abandon their shim. Yes, there would be some engineering and automation work mm -hmm. to pick up the, the Kubernetes native elements. But they haven't, uh, again, as I understand it, they haven't built anything in a way that precludes them from adopting Kubernetes in the future. They just don't see the need right now. Yeah, but again, I want to go away from the company specific Ably. I mean, they do their stuff great. A more generic note, how do I decide when, I'm ha when I have a, a cool product, it's containerized, it's on the internet, it's in the public cloud, it's, it's running well. I'm hoping I'm going to grow. Growth usually means more complexity. So even if I'm building something to myself today, I have to keep in my head that I'll probably have more maintenance work on this to the future in a kind of exponential curve because the more complexity, the more maintenance, the more maintenance on the maintenance and stuff like that. So when do I decide that I'm going to build my own because simple is good enough and I guess I'm not going to grow that big anyway? Kind of bad headset there at the moment. And when does it make sense to just say, okay, I don't need all this stuff from Kubernetes, but I can, if I use it now, use it for what I want it. And I don't have that limitation to the future. If I need more of that functionality, it'll be easy to do. And I mean, a, a simple thing that from my work experience uh, comes uh, is something that comes later is monitoring observability. If you start your stuff, it just needs to work. Then at a certain point, observability monitoring gets more important. Adding monitoring to something you built yourself is harder than using, for instance, the hint system from Kubernetes that is built specifically for that. And this mm. is a complication that's not from my offering has become more complex, but simply from it becomes a product that needs to be monitored for my livelihood. So I need to add complexity from that point of view. And I'm not advocating pro or con either way. I'm just for myself and I, I'm failing, trying to find a good reasoning, an algorithm that gives me true false. Should I build simple myself or just take that complex thing and bite the bullet? It's a hard one, I think. I, I agree. I think I think that uh, far smarter people than us have tried and failed to come up with a a clear answer as to uh, what the what the correct response is. There, I don't. I think there are a lot of different variables, and I think this is part of the the complexity. Is Kubernetes provides a lot of different elements that you know you could say are incredibly valuable mm -hmm. as you say like the 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 native uh you know every kubernetes distribution comes with 
Prometheus baked into it from the from the very beginning. So you've got metrics out of the box. Great, fantastic. One less thing to worry about. But and there are lots and lots of different components like that. You know, you can add service discovery into those things. You can add, you know, scaling. You can add so many you know, the API endpoint control. You can add so much into this that it's possible for it to do. But I think I think it comes down to having some sort of understanding is what would it take for you to implement the things that you want to do separately and maybe that's not even implementing maybe it's just consuming another open source project that's independent of kubernetes in some way shape or form and you know maybe maybe you don't need uh trying to think of an example okay maybe you don't need some sort of you don't need to consume some sort of built-in load balancing you're happy to just use nginx or <laughs> something like that so you you're able to cobble together out of a handful of open source projects the functionality that you actually require versus you adopting um you know an entire container orchestration platform but you need to understand well what's the cost for you to both do that design work, that test work, that implementation work, and that continual support of not necessarily the software if you're combining it from existing things, but you're still going to have a whole bunch of glue code and integration and automation work and plugging yeah. it into a CI/CD pipeline and everything else. So it doesn't, it still doesn't come for free, even if you're kind of simplifying your situation. And I think the only way to try and attempt to do this is through a some form of kind of TCO or ROI calculation where you're honest <laughs> as to how the how much these things are actually going to cost you uh, in yeah. terms of time in terms of effort to actually implement and run longer term with a vision on your some sort of vision on your future yeah, but it's hard to do an ROI on the future when you don't really know what the future will hold. And considering that, and this is not, we're talking about Kubernetes specifically now, but it can be other kinds of frameworks that do stuff. Considering that those things are being used by a lot of people, the chances that you will need something that is not needed by any of those other people is rather small, considering the amount of, the size of the community at the moment is using Kubernetes. It's... From that point of view, it's a safer bet to just go for something industry standard, if I can call it that, because it will isolate you from choices you're going to make even before you know you're going to have to potentially make those choices, if that makes any sense at all at that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, so it, it, it's a hard one, because on the one hand, you need to get, if you do something with Kubernetes, you need people inside that know what the thing is, and it's a complicated thing. We talked about the easy button earlier in a couple of some episodes back we had the easy button with the kubernetes without intelligence could be deployed and i was very much against that at that time too because it's too complicated you can't just run that out and roll that out and hope it works and that's yeah effort and resource uh, expenditure but yeah it, i don't know it's a hard one i just mm. say smarter people than us probably <laughs> yeah indeed indeed but i think the 
the the, the, the takeaway from this is definitely just still the internet's full of trolls. Anyway, <laughs> moving, moving on from one set of trolls to another. <laughs> this is uh, art, not trolls. This is art. <laughs> so th- this this article is talking about um, something that I find quite quite amusing, which is a a set of. Uh, tooling built to analyze how engaged uh, people were uh, during their time at uh, Congress and it's doing things like uh, seeing if people are doing something on their phone or looking at their phone or interacting with their phone versus you know watching the live stream of information or looking at the speaker or whatever it might be. Um, yeah, but actually this was an art project from a Belgian artist who built something on top of uh, very readily available commodity AI machine learning stuff and he connected this up to Twitter. So whenever there was an open session of, in this case, the Belgian uh, parliament, I guess, whatever, he put out these kinds of uh, augmented imagery that showed all of these very important people looking at their phones. And they had some reasoning behind it that uh, they were actually reading their notes from their phones or having uh, inter-party communications going on, stuff like that. doesn't matter. The one thing it did do, however, is kind of show a bad light on how the whole privacy discussion is going because a lot of governments want more cameras on the street so they can follow their citizens more closely when this happens when a citizen started following them more closely they were less amused so that was a bit of a a nice (laughs) an interesting way of looking at it and i mean the worst thing about the picture we had on the screen earlier is that basically every single person there is looking at their phone it's not just occasionally some a couple of them all of them anyway doesn't matter i don't live in belgium anymore this is not why, uh, but it does become very, I mean, again, this was not a high end technological company that built something totally innovative. This was just a, I guess, somewhat technical person clobbering something together with out of the box commodity stuff available on the, on the on public cloud and stuff like that to build something that can have, that could have a very profound impact on society. Yeah. And in fact, we, we, we sort of, I'm sure we had a news episode quite some time ago, probably well over six months ago now, where someone had, was pointing a webcam out their window and they'd written a bit of software that analyzed when there was a free parking space um, outside of their apartment so they could move their car closer to their apartment from where they'd had to leave their car. And, you know, these sort of things... You know, and this was just like one person hacking away at a bit of a project that was a bit of fun to them. But these sort of things are becoming far easier for people to, individuals to put together. And I also think we're seeing more and more advanced use cases of not just you know single frames being analyzed and not just single video streams being analyzed, but multiple video streams and the results being kind of collated around them you know things like um shoplifting and um sort of other analysis of multiple videos to track 
yeah, both people's um, movements and also their actions uh, have been reasonably commonplace and growing for quite some time. And this is this is just uh, sort of yeah, someone turning the tables on on the the uh, the folks making some of these laws and uh, kind of amusing, but it's. It is this that sort of stuff is very real and very commonplace now. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping that stuff like this is going to happen more often. I mean, worldwide, I think there's a bit of a movement now where governments have to be more open about what they're doing, how they're doing it, when they're doing it, stuff like that. So, I mean, most of the European Parliament stuff is also made public. So it would be good to have kind of statistics of stuff like this happening after I don't know, a, a four-year period of uh, of ruling. And then just seeing, I mean, this is a moment in time, but if certain persons or certain parties more looking at their phone than other parties, would that suddenly become interesting when voting comes along? If that kind of information becomes available? But then how do you, like the, the really interesting thing is how do you differentiate between someone just you know sending a message to their other half about the fact that god this session's going on long and it's really boring and i can't wait to leave here what time's dinner tonight mm -hmm. something like that versus hmm they mentioned this particular fact i don't i'm not sure that's correct can someone go and fact check that immediately and get back to me so i can uh, so I can raise a question about the things the opposition are saying kind of interaction. Are you saying that the people who sit in our governments, parliaments, uh, whatever you call them around the world, aren't people that are sitting there because they are knowledgeable, but because they are the figureheads in front of something else that is, has all the knowledge? Is that you how be, politics has gone? No. You can be knowledgeable. But that doesn't mean you know everything. Like they have staffs for a reason. Yeah, because they're the marketing figurehead, basically. Sorry, <laughs> I, uh, I don't like politics. <laughs> uh, I also am not a fan. But regardless, like they they are supposed to have some sort of. Uh, yeah, we could debate this a lot. Well, you could change that. I mean, rabbit hole. <laughs> if if somebody of their of their own party is doing a speech, they should be looking at fact checks. Because maybe. Maybe they're preparing for the the inevitable rebuttal that comes from their... No, but that would uh, happen the, the opposition. <laughs> yeah, but no, they're preparing for the rebuttal. Anyway, so yeah. my point, though, is is that, well, in that case, surely you need a... a, a like every person needs a second camera viewpoint, which allows you, or which allows the AI system, to the machine learning system, to see what's on their screen. So you can see if they're... Like if oh. they're just uh, communicating uh, with uh, with their kids on FaceTime, saying hi or whatever it might be, or if are they reading documents that support or dis or or uh, or are against the the comments that are happening in the room at the time, so they can prepare for the comments they're about to make or what. But then you get into this even more murky land of uh, it can of be much privacy. simpler than that the moment here in the netherlands there's actually a law being formed uh, the wet open overheid it's a law for open governments and 
okay, there's different ways of reading a law. There's always interpretation in there, but the hardest interpretation they have read myself is that everything connected to government should be open up. So if you're reading during an open session on your government-sponsored phone, probably, then all of that stuff should just become open as well. So I don't need a camera. I can just see, oh, it was at 10.15. Please tell me what you're looking at. And they would have to show it. Mm. And considering that high-level functionaries aren't supposed to be using private phones or anything that's government-related, there's no reason to have your private phone in the session room. So problem solved. Mm. <laughs> you can understand there's some resistance against this law from certain demographics. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> But it's going to happen, I think, at some point. Yeah, I mean, there's a variety of other things you could do. You could have, uh, you could have, you know, cell phone sort of uh, blocking there, and only kind of Wi-Fi internet enabled, and that Wi-Fi could be audited. Like, there's all sorts of different methods you could uh, you could do for that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, an interesting interesting direction to take well the interesting thing is how anyway, easy it becomes to make this happen it's going to get more yeah. prevalent it's going to happen more and more often and the good thing is it's not just pointed against us citizens but also apparently against government bodies which is a good thing because everybody should uh, be under the same scrutiny yeah no very true very true all right so the next uh the next topic uh, is around uh, once more uh, yeah. once more another CDN provider went down so back in uh, 8th of June we talked about Fastly uh, having gone down and uh, back what was this July 22nd uh, Akamai had a glitch uh, which caused uh, a fairly significant degree of outage uh, for a, a wide variety of organizations and uh, I'm sure someone at Akamai was going it's not DNS it can't be a DNS and yeah it was DNS so DNS. the you know <laughs> so Delta Airlines, Costco, American Express, Home Depot were all down uh, Oracle Corp and Amazon uh, so they had issues related to Akamai's network going down, and there's there's a certain degree of it's not sure it's irony as such, but like you you sign up to a uh, a CDN a content delivery network in order to try and ensure that your service is always up regardless of how much demand is being driven to it, and when those services go down, well like there's there's not really any way to recover from uh, a CDN failure. I, I have, I mean, there are all sorts of funky things you can do with networking, um, you know, things like BGP and stuff like that in order to reroute traffic on the fly. But like how many organizations uh, are likely to sign up for multiple CDN providers in, in times of an outage of this kind of scale? Uh, this is 
goes together with the hybrid cloud, multi-cloud approach, right? I mean, if you have everything running on one cloud, you're putting all your eggs in one basket. If you yeah. have a very high risk, uh, high, high stakes thing going on, you need disaster recovery situations and CDNs by themselves can be highly available, but are not disaster proof. If you want to have a CDN disaster proof, you need to have a second one up there. Yep. The thing is, those things are expensive, especially if you're not yeah, using them. Yeah, they are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's once again, you know, another major service, another major outage, but it's, this is just, this is the world we live in of, of highly complicated uh, architectures. Often, I mean, these are a couple well, very shortly after each other. I mean, it does seem like the domino effect of clouds falling over has kind of passed us by, but now the SaaS level services are getting to that same cycle, it would seem. I don't know. I don't. I don't know that I really believe that. I think if you look at, um, if you look at any of these things, like they, they happen on a, maybe not regular basis, but they they do happen more often than we would like, and sometimes there's a good gap between outages, and sometimes they happen more frequently but I, I i don't believe that like we are done with the time of rolling cloud provider outages i think the next one is you know gonna gonna be rolling on before too long we'll be we'll be talking about you know gcp or aws or an azure yeah. zone yeah. or region going had, down they've had one all of them so i hope they'll learn their lesson but then there are always new lessons to be learned like that's the whole thing like the <laughs> Oh, it's a growth mindset. Okay. <laughs> the, well, this, none of this stuff is staying static, is it? Like all of this yeah. stuff is evolving and changing the whole time, which awesome. means there are always new and exciting ways that things could break. And it, for me, like that's that's the uh, that's the um, that's the situation we're in right now. And the only question is, how quickly can you recover? Yep. Um, how much can you limit the blast radius of a particular, you know, outage or issue that you've got? How can you restrict it to as few customers as possible, as few time. regions, countries, you know, as short a time period as possible? Um, and that's, you know, I think that's the most that that anyone can really do in this space. And that's yeah. just but the is the responsibility of the provider of the service or of the consumer of the service should the provider make sure that stuff doesn't go down all the time uh, all everywhere at the same time for a long time or is it the responsibility of the consumer to make sure they have disaster recovery in place that if SaaS service goes down I can fall back to a secondary both there we go it, it's the responsibility <laughs> of the provider um, to publish you know their SLAs that they believe that they mm -hmm. can meet it's the responsibility of the consumer of that service to have done their due diligence that those slas are actually met today and that that provider has a level of they have a level of trust with that provider and it's a it's up to the consumer to decide whether that sla is enough and whether there are Penalties involved in the contract if SLAs are breached or whether you just get the immediate right to vanish off to another provider or whatever it might be, or whether you decide that your service, your solution is so important 
that you know you must have a backup for if that particular service does go down like that's that is definitely in my mind at least the responsibility of the the consumer of that service to make their decision as to how important their service is and how and I think you've mentioned this before you need to talk you need to understand well what's the what's the impact in say for example revenue of my system being down for an hour well if the impact on revenue is you know negligible or zero then like why would you pay significantly more to have a backup for that if every you know minute you're down revenue drops by a million dollars there's probably a business case there to be made for having some form of backup or dr solution for that particular service when it goes down if it goes down yeah and cost of course can be dollars human life uh, wasted time whatever yeah but for me it, it kind of depends on the service itself i mean if i have a database okay i have a database it's my responsibility to make sure if it's if it is or isn't resilient or not but cdns i think are an exception because the whole idea for a cdn is to have something up there that's fault resistant and make sure that data goes where it has to go for those specifically, I would kind of expect Akamai to have a dual network, to have a dual setup that they have disaster recovery in. And not just Akamai, Fastly, Akamai, Cloudflare, all of them. CDN specifically, I'd say it should be on them and not on us. But mm. And maybe but Akamai they... has different pricing tiers where you can choose to pay less for less resilience and more for more resilience. I have no idea. Yeah, maybe. Well... That's enough for CDNs and their outages. I think that's probably enough for the enough podcast for us as well. Today. It is all the time we have for today. You can support the podcast. You can become a patron. Every contribution helps. We're on YouTube. You can press the like, subscribe, notification bell buttons, and all the YouTube stuff that Dave likes so much. You can go to www.roaringelephant.org. There's a link there to the Patreon page, the YouTube page, and more information about the podcast. And you can follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag. You can also still send your emails to podcast at roaringelephant.org with any hints, tips, subjects, whatever suggestions you might have. Until next time, my name is definitely not Modularion. My name is Exceeding SLA Dave. Ooh, depends on the SLA. We look forward to talking to you all again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. I can tell you it's not very high. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you achieve it. Bye.